John, I don't know if you've ever experienced the summer cold before. No. But it's, it's not worst. cold. It's I not don't. cold in summer. That doesn't make sense. I know exactly. I don't agree with your premise. No, I, thanks. Again, always a great source of improv, John. <laughs> Answer every question when no. Answer then no. It's the secret to improv. Yeah. Yes. Are you and, well, what a premise. Yes, and uh, the summer cold is bad. <laughs> and exactly. I'm having your baby. <laughs> exactly, John. It's a jumping-off point. Heighten the emotions. Jumping-off. I know exactly, John. Are you at least curious why I have a summer cold? No. It's because I was on a plane for 32 hours, flying to another country. Oh, good for you. And this makes me very interesting. <laughs> what country did you fly to, Greg? I visited the great country of Kyrgyzstan. Great. Do you know where that is? Uh, it's one of those Soviet bloc countries where I... the sun doesn't shine. It's always overcast. and No, the sun was shining all the whole week I was there. Okay. Uh, it's a beautiful country. Mm-hmm. Uh, renowned for not only well, it's patriotism for one thing because uh, since it uh, this fall of the Soviet Union, um, they were trying to forge a national identity. So you see their uh, great red and gold flag everywhere. Mm. It's a sweet design. Great, um, but also for its uh, just natural beauty. Mm. It's stunning, and so that was there for a, a a missions trip. We probably don't explain that we're both God fearing Christians. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever brought that up on the show before. I think half of the reason why you do this podcast is so you can kind of brag about what a good person you are. Absolutely. <laughs> so I just got back from a missions trip. I don't yeah. know if you guys knew this. I was there for of my own volition, for charity. Yes, yes. Helping, helping the poor people of the country. <laughs> <laughs> and praising their patriotism, which uh, feels a front to me as a God-fearing American. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny how I find the patriotism of Kyrgyzstan endearing and yet worrying <laughs> in the United States. Why is that? <laughs> Because Donald Trump is our president. Uh, that's that's true. Yeah. Also, I don't yeah, know. It's it's a, it's a blind patriotism, and I'm sure it's the same in Kyrgyzstan, which uh, is unfortunately a very corrupt country, right, with injustice as well. <laughs> Who's the current uh, president of Kyrgyzstan or prime minister? Uh, I do, don't what's know. their what's what's their system, Greg? I don't know. Us. It's it should be it should be it's a. But you just got back there from there, Greg. <laughs> How do you not know? It's one week. Hey, they haven't had. If you look at their sign, it says no revolution since 2010, so. <laughs> 365 days since revolution. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you had a good trip, except for the cold you caught. Except for the cold. Unfortunately, uh, the film we're talking about, it's not a good day to be a Christian when discussing <laughs> the film that we're talking about today. Speaking of traveling abroad and gaining mm-hmm. experiences, we watched Waltz with Bashir. This was your pick. Yes. Because I, I preach the gospel of this movie. <laughs> also, I, you're, you're a cold, cold man. Cold? Excuse me. <laughs> Hang on. This is. I saw this movie when it first came out in around 2000, late 2008, early 2009. Mm-hmm. 
I was absolutely blown away by it, and it's been preaching the gospel for it ever since. I <laughs> Again, you and preaching the gospel. Gosh, so so much proselytizing. I know, we're just using religious analogies. <laughs> In any event, strongly endorse this film. I think it's one of the most powerful cinematic statements I've ever seen, and I've been trying to share it with everybody ever since. And John, you've been you've been open enough to watch it. Yes, I have. So thank so thank you to exposing yourself to this uh, not exactly uh, pleasant <laughs> affair. Are you um, kidding? This was a rip roaring adventure. This is like, oh, what a fun for the whole family. <laughs> okay, some background. <laughs> this is a documentary, but it's almost entirely animated. Yes, it's a uh, not quite rotoscoped, but uh, very similar to that kind of style. Yeah. It looks it looks rotoscoped. It looks like you know hand drawn animation over live action, but it's not that. And it's actually some of it is a lot of it is reenacted. I would say about half of it. The other half, mm-hmm. the documentary portion, is basically taking audio interviews and applying some animation to them. Exactly. The animation serves a very specific purpose. The director and writer of the film, Ari Fullman, he has went through some traumatic experiences and. Quite frankly, he's just blocked him out. Yeah, he served. He served in the Israeli army for the, during the 1982 Lebanon War, and probably a psychological result of this, his memory has obfuscated this, and so to mm-hmm. reflect this, this whole movie has become animated, almost as a way to distance himself and the viewer from what actually happened during this Lebanese war. Yes, at the very beginning, he explains that he cannot remember any specific details about the war, and then basically goes to his friends and comrades inside the during the war to basically elucidate what what actually happened um yeah and uh it's a very harrowing experience watching this movie it is absolutely gorgeous uh it was animated in flash surprisingly so it's it's a little amorphous it's a little strange but just the compositions and the visuals that they create is just absolutely striking. The one that really sticks out particularly to me is that there's this moment where they're driving a tank through, I don't know, some indescript Lebanese city. I and think it's Beirut, but Be- yeah, it's oh, yeah, you're right. It is shelled Beirut. out. It's a, it's a, it's just rubble at this point. Exactly, and they're just shooting at nothing. They're just constantly in all all directions. They're just firing their machine guns, and at one point, a soldier just asks, like, "What are we shooting at?" It's just keep shooting and then you know then like sunset night falls and the only lights you see are the muzzle flashes from all these machine guns in all different directions as the tank just slowly goes off into the distance and it's just oh it's it's absolutely gorgeous the lighting effects that they're able to achieve again with flash like this obsolete piece of technology well i yeah i don't know anything about flash so <laughs> i can't speak to that i guess i that's what i wanted to learn from you is the the contrast between depicting something so ugly, mm-hmm. in this case, the 1982 Lebanon War, and eventually the Sabra and Shatila massacre of innocent civilians during this mm-hmm. time, innocent refugees during this time, mm-hmm. with uh, just gorgeous animation, and, and depicting these these kind of harrowing, ugly events in such a beautiful way. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's that famous quote, there's no such thing as an anti-war film. Who said that? Uh, I believe that was, <laughs> I believe that was Francois Truffaut. Ooh, ooh, la la. But yeah, it's probably one of those quotes that get credited to Einstein, for all we know. <laughs> Basically, his point being that film glamorizes everything, including the ugly violence of war. So well, there's no I way mean, to make a make an anti-war film. Well, I was thinking about that watching this film because it's like to make a film this gorgeous, but also this harrowing. Like obviously, this does not 
this film does not try to make a war look glamorous at all, if anything. But again, the way it's composed is just absolutely gorgeous. And that does kind of add an allure to it. So, so you it, don't think it makes it look glamorous? No, I don't think so, not at all. Okay, that's a, that's what I was wondering this this viewing. I don't know, I can't count how many times I've but seen there this movie is a, I there, it. But there is a cinematic language I'd use, and so I can kind of see the confusion there. Because okay. to actually not just you know film this, but also animate it, and then to compose those shots so perfectly, because again, this is a perfectly directed movie, I can see why some people would think that there is an allure to depicting war on film. Well, I think it's the case here because, it again, it's so beautifully animated, and uh, we should also probably explain there are pop songs that come up during the movie. <laughs> yes, a lot of strange pop songs uh, yeah. that the audience, American, American audience, obviously would never have heard of because they're all from Israel and Lebanon. And well, hang on. <laughs> oh, please. Are you telling me you were familiar <laughs> people, with People have heard Enola Gay. That, people are familiar with that 80s beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my rendition of an old guy. You're welcome. <laughs> I I felt as an American watching this movie, it felt very much like a Vietnam War film. Like that's the only kind of headspace I could kind of relate it to, which is like here is this war where there really is what no clear winner. It just kind of felt mm-hmm. like an invading force coming in and just kind of laying waste for no outside purpose and then people coming home and then not completely processing what they just went through. Yeah, it did, it did remind me of Apocalypse Now um, mm-hmm. on this viewing. I saw this movie before I saw Apocalypse Now, so it's kind of so maybe I'm like now filtering it through that experience, but yeah. Well, I mean, I was filtering it through Full Metal Jacket, which we've watched for this podcast, so Oh yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess a, so I guess so too, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's such a just a powerful film like Again, these war films, they all kind of like build off each other. Because again, it's, there's, there's, it's always the same theme, which is war is hell. Ideally, mm-hmm. that would be the theme of any war film. Yeah, but yeah, I, I guess this time I couldn't square exactly. Well, I mean, I still, I still do. I guess the purpose of the animation, mm-hmm. in spite of how beautiful it is, is also to basically convey the, the vagueness of the director's memory in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gives it that dreamlike quality because, again, he can't yeah. remember. And also, it works for the interviews as well because he asks these interviewers. He apparently served with them, but they don't really remember each other. They haven't seen each other in 20-plus years. So it's like, even if they did talk, they're pretty much unrecognizable to each other. The only one he has kind of regular correspondence with is the first person he talks to, his friend who describes the dream with the dogs. Yeah, and that's that kicks off his whole amnesia about his experiences during this war. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I just remember how alive the filmmaking is actually in that first <laughs> sequence. I, I'd forgotten because it's very it's a very somber, reflective film. Mm-hmm. But in these opening moments, it's very propulsive and actually really gets you going <laughs> because it's reflecting this nightmare that he has about twenty six dogs, exactly twenty six dogs mm-hmm. that he had to shoot so that his that his troop that he was bringing in wouldn't be alerted by the dogs or that mm-hmm. the dogs wouldn't alert them over their presence. And now he's haunted. Now he has this recurring dream where all the dogs kind of come back and get their revenge. Yeah.
עכשיו, הם עומדים שם בנפחים 26 כלבים, ואני רואה מהחלון שהפנים שלהם רעות, שהם באו לרצוח. Pretty scary stuff, and I, yeah, I, I mean, personally for me, I know it's a cliche to have, you know, your movie open on a dream sequence, but I think it kind of works, because if you can get the audience to buy into the dream sequence, you can take them anywhere after that. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I take issue with the word cliche. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in this movie, it's certainly not used as a cliche. No, and... I, I feel like the, the other great benefit of these stories is that these stories that, the, that these guys recount are so unique in that way. Mm-hmm. Again, he feels guilt about killing dogs. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's not directly related to the massacre, which then becomes the central focus of the movie, but uh, there's another character. My, my favorite sequence is a character named Ronnie. Character. He's a real person. <laughs> <laughs> He's a real-life human being who fought in this war. Yeah, excuse me. <laughs> His name is Ronnie, and he recounts um, when he's when he and his uh, regiment are encamped on the beach. Mm-hmm. They get ambushed, and he has to run out to the beach and swim. Well, and it's the great part about his story is he talks about his regiment. They had a tank, and yes. how safe he felt in the tank. And obviously, that's a little bit of foreshadowing. We know that you know <laughs> he's eventually going to have to leave that tank, and things mm-hmm. aren't going to end up well. And yeah, I think I think his story is the most powerful because of the way he describes it is so deadpan. It's this um, well, that too. It's this em- probably, yeah. It's this emotionally harrowing experience for him, but the way he just kind of he just says it so matter-of-factly. That too, and you could definitely tell when which sequences were or which conversations were reenacted by Ari Floman and his friend, mm-hmm. and which sequences he's getting a direct answer from exactly, or having and conducting a live interview with Ronnie is definitely a live interview. Mm-hmm. You can definitely tell, and just you, when you talk about that deadpan, I think it is to get the distance of literally seeing his whole regiment ambushed and murdered mm-hmm. and then having to survive out at sea. I'm glad you kind of brought that up because I do think the weakest parts of the movie are probably when Ari Fulman, the director, is talking about his experience by himself. Because I think he does kind of make it sound a little too flowery and artsy and dramatic. And it definitely does not have that verisimilitude that, like Ronnie does yeah it, it feels a little rehearsed it feels a little scripted when he's kind of talking about his experiences like oh the lights from the helicopters were like halos and i'm just like I'm, i wasn't buying it okay <laughs> well that's why i wanted to ask i think because he's a he's a filmmaker he, yeah he explains true. like yeah. What, what can i do what can i explain about the movie i'm just a filmmaker mm-hmm. that's true in this case I, he just does narrative films he doesn't even do documentaries he never he's never done a documentary before this mm-hmm. and so I'm sure he doesn't feel capable of it and does describe things in flowery terms. And in the case of his, his experience, all he knows is this dream that he has two other soldiers are literally waking up naked in the ocean, mm-hmm. get dressed and come upon the massacre, pretty much. Mm-hmm. That's, all that, that's all that he can remember. I mean, adding to the irony is the fact that no other soldier remembers this and also where the massacre took place was nowhere near water. So again, yeah. it adds to that whole kind of dreamlike obfuscation that's going on in his head. Yeah. He he does remember one soldier being there. Mm-hmm. He's who's now living in uh, the Netherlands, and he says like I wasn't there. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and again, that makes it an interesting contrast because it's almost like that soldier moved to the Netherlands so he'd get as far away as he could from what happened. And it's a sharp contrast when you go straight from like Israel, this Mediterranean, very arid climate, to the Dutch tulips and you know the 
orchids and stuff like that. Not orchids, yeah. orchard, orchards. That's what I mean. Well, that's not that's not how it's depicted in the movie. I think that that's an even greater contrast than how it's set in the movie. It's actually in the middle of winter when he meets him, and he's freezing cold. I guess that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's literally how these encounters happened, but yeah. Well, he also goes back in springtime. He goes that's back true, later. Right. Yeah, they sit amongst the tulips. Yep. Um. The other character, or interviewee, <laughs> to bring up, yeah. uh, the one who stuck out... Again, sorry sorry for this kind of distance that we have from it. I know. That's the other, yeah, that's the other thing I should probably explain, too, is that it it's a very humanist movie, and then I, I instantly connect with these people, mm-hmm. even though they're now middle-aged former Israeli soldiers, So one of whom, that guy in the Dutch, is now a very successful businessman... You know, Ari Floman's a filmmaker, you know, mm-hmm. all the, they've all had families, kids who we see, mm-hmm. and so it's it's strange how we could be so different, and yet, like, I connect with them immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the one character who kind of stood, again, character, interviewee <laughs> stood out to me was Frankel. Oh, yeah. Cause Frankel is yeah, Frankel is kind of a more mythic war hero. Yeah, he, he, he plays more of the kind of archetypical war hero. When we're introduced to him, he's doing judo. And the way he kind of talks about the war is definitely not in these kind of like dry terms, but again, like a like he was a triumphant warrior, and yeah, again, more prideful. I'd yeah, say. exactly. He doesn't seem like he's suffering from any trauma whatsoever. He, he looks back on it not fondly, but you know, as a you know kind of rip roaring fun experience. And I think it also kind of implies that maybe he's also kind of obfuscating mentally from what really happened. He has this one story where he's pinned down with his men. And he's forced to use a machine gun that he's not comfortable with. It's it's this tiny little impotent little machine gun, this little like yeah. pew pew pew, and you know he kind of steals one of his men's like M16, like this big man gun, and he goes out there and you know like fires around, you know gets out there in the middle of the open range. Yeah, completely exposed, mm-hmm. courageously just goes out there and starts laying fire all over the place because they're being pinned down in it from every direction. Mm-hmm. And he starts like waltzing. They describe it as a waltz, the way he kind of like dances around and avoids getting shot. Well, obviously, probably didn't happen this way. But again, in his own head, he's the hero of the story, and this is how he remembers it. Yeah. Although, isn't there that reporter that there, yeah, there's also cor- that reporter. corroborates his story? Yeah, that's true. He was also there. And again, he also talks about, you know, being under fire, but not really cowering. They show him like, you know... Yeah, standing up straight while his cameraman is like crouched, you know, crawling on all fours with his huge camera. ניצח,בודקה,בנוואת המאמינים של בשיר מתכוננים לנקמה הגדולה, מתכוננים לטבח במחנות הפליטים סברה ושתילה. 
It's the namesake of the of the movie. It's the <laughs> it's the title of the movie. Exactly. It's basically, the sequence. Well, I guess we should also explain the Bashir of the movie. Oh yeah, I didn't I didn't want to get into the history of this because it's so complicated. <laughs> it is very complicated. But the Bashir from the movie is the president of Lebanon during the time of the war. He, Bashir Jamal. Yeah, I was excuse me for butchering that. <laughs> He's the le- recently elected president of. He's the president elect of Lebanon, mm-hmm. somewhat installed by the Israeli Defense Forces that have been in there to force out Palestinians, and he gets assassinated. Yep. And I guess it comes time to get to the real central event of this. Yeah. So um, this assassination uh, led to a series of events where, in a refugee camp, um, with a kind of a power vacuum and no real. Uh, shall we say, law and order, um, there was a massacre of Palestinians, basically. Yeah, between, according to Wikipedia, 460 and 3,500 innocent refugees were slaughtered by uh, Lebanese uh, philangelist Christians. Yeah. Again, the, the, yeah, the, the kind of different groups that everyone is in is so, is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And again, the movie doesn't really get into that much detail. It just kind of like mentions them as a matter of factly. Um, yeah, it doesn't and really... And we should also mention, like, it's not as though, it's not as though the central character, Ari Floman, committed these murders. Mm-hmm. But what it strongly implies is, and what it goes through in the final act is basically, you know, Israeli forces, or Israeli troopers basically reporting to their superiors like, hey, I think they're massacring innocents in there. Mm-hmm. And Israeli forces just kind of be like, yeah, we'll we'll get to it. <laughs> exactly. And kind of, and uh, sadly, turning a blind eye to what was going on in this camp. And I guess that's kind of like the big reveal of the movie. It's not that Ari was par- a participant directly in this massacre, but again, the fact that they all took a blind eye. And mm-hmm. in a way of being that uh, bystander, and because he didn't do anything about it, that's where his guilt stems from. Yeah, it's reflective of the whole... It's kind of Israeli defense force at that point turning a blind eye. I mean, you could look at it as literal. <laughs> from a, you can look at it as a literal perspective. He he literally kind of kind of forced that out. Has forced that amnesia on himself, in the same way as the Israeli forces kind of turned a blind eye to what was going on in this camp. Hmm. Fun time at the movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what I was wondering. And I guess if we should get to the final moment mm. again, the 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 literal gut punch. Yeah. <laughs> Which I should preface by saying, like, no, like, I love it when I get a visceral reaction from a movie. That no movie, like, I have not gotten a visceral reaction out of any other movie other than this, other than this moment. Hmm. I should say, Waltz of Bashir is not my all-time favorite film, but it is, like, one of my all-time favorite, not favorite, <laughs> but one of the all-time most effective moments I've ever seen on film. Yes. So the whole movie is obviously animated. Mm-hmm. And when we finally get to the point talking about the aftermath of the massacre, we get a shot of the refugees. They're about to kind of go off to the camp, and then the, or they're about to leave the camp, and then they're kind of ordered to go back. And as they're going back, they start wailing. They start experience, like seeing all the dead bodies, seeing the aftermath. And that's when we cut to the actual live footage of this reaction, of newsreel of these real people and these real corpses of these slain Palestinians. And who boy. <laughs> it is not fun. Yeah, this yeah. It, it's especially this was your first time seeing it, like every subsequent viewing, it begins with a long tracking shot through the crowd that kind of dollies in on Bashir, and every time I see it I cringe because I know what's coming up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and it goes closer to closer in Bashir, and I literally like crumple into a ball because mm-hmm. I know what's going to happen. Because then it's it's a clo- it dollies into a close up on an animated Bashir, but then just a cut to these these wailing women and children whose families have just been torn apart. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's one of the most powerful, <laughs> and you could see why, in spite of, in spite of the contrast of you know demonstrating the ugliness of war with the beauty of this animation, you could see why it was animated the whole time. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's the big irony of this is a drawing to a close to our animation month, but <laughs> without even planning this, all, all but one of our animated movies had a live-action component to it. And yeah. again, we did not plan this, and this is the best use of it, honestly. Honest to goodness. Mm-hmm. Like, just... the. I, I, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> it's just, it's an absolutely... Exactly, that's the exact kind of reaction that it elicits. Yeah, it's a, it's an absolutely powerful moment, and it sticks with you. Yeah, absolutely. Which, again, is why I just wholeheartedly recommend this movie. I just I just want to pour it out for everybody, like, this how impactful and important it is. This is a public service announcement. See this movie. Yes. <laughs> now, Grant, yeah, and also, just exposure to this... 1982 Lebanon War. Lebanon War. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's something a lot of Americans obviously don't know about. Like I said earlier, like I was like, is this Vietnam? This feels like Vietnam. Because <laughs> again, I have no, I have no frame of reference for anything that was going on. Yeah. It's so, please, please check it out. Um, as as harrowing as difficult. Although I'd say, due to the beauty of the animation, it's not a difficult viewing experience. No, absolutely not. And again, going back to what I said earlier about there's no such thing as an anti-war film. Um, it's an extremely, despite that last moment, it's an extremely watchable film. That animation does kind of help you digest what exactly is going on. And even though it is a harrowing experience, you know, and even though it is animated, it still kind of puts you in there. It's a, it's, it's just, it's a great balancing act. Yeah, again, I think it's one of the most powerful pieces of film ever made. So I thank you, Ari Fulman. Yes. Good on you. I think it's... Good yeah, job. I think. I don't. I don't mean to sound condescending in that way, but <laughs> keep it up, Ari. Yeah, I mean, just I. I guess congratulations to him for creating such a powerful statement. Oh yeah, it's mm. a hard movie to talk about. It really is. Yeah, as you as you could probably tell from the first <laughs> twenty five minutes of this discussion. Yes, but I mean, again, the part of the reason why we did this is because we want you, our listener, to see it. So please, if you have the opportunity, please seek it out. John, yeah, that concludes our animation month, huh? <sighs> yeah. Is there is there any animated movie that you feel like we should have at least explored? Um, I know you really wanted to watch Watership Down. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> I was really trying to get you to watch Watership Down. <laughs> uh, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> at least, I, at least I was aware of the pain of this of this particular event because I'd seen this movie before. Mm. <laughs> but seeing the pain of Watership Down might be a bridge too far for me. <laughs> I can handle dead Palestinians, but dead bunnies? Oh. Hang on, Hank, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs>
this this was based on a true event and it's important yeah. to witness and and ruminate on it yes Whereas taking a storybook tale of talking bunnies and then having them murder each other. <laughs> not fun. I'm not made of stone. <laughs> um, the only other thing I could probably kind of wanted to get to is I wanted to, uh, for some reason I've been on like a Don Bluth kick. And so oh, yeah. I've, I, I remember reading the book, um, The Rats of Nim. And I always loved that book, but I was, I've never gotten around to seeing The Secret of Nim, which is kind of the adaptation of the, a Secret of the Nim is the actual sequel to the book, but they've, adapted that into a movie for some reason and not the original and mm-hmm. I've, I've never seen that but i have seen his other mouse related movies uh american tale and an american tale 2 Five O goes west which uh <laughs> i'm kind of glad we didn't do because they're really not that good <laughs> ouch they, they, they're problematic not problematic mm. but you know they just have they're, they're loose okay they're flabby what yeah <laughs> one thing do you know who don hertzfeld is that name sounds familiar it's the guy who does the short animated films with the stick figures. Oh, World of Tomorrow. Yes. Yes. World of Tomorrow, which I hope is still available on Netflix. Mm-hmm. That I did. That I did watch on the based on the recommendation of a lot of my hipster friends. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in skeptical, like, oh, this is just going to be a silly art piece. And but over the course of seventeen minutes, it's a it's a very powerful little piece. Really? Okay. So yeah. I had seen, I had seen another short of his called rejected and that is not a very powerful piece <laughs> okay it's very unique I believe that's his middle i believe that's his middle act he's only done three of these <laughs> yes that's very unique but i can't say uh-huh. i recommend it to anybody uh very creative okay. you know creative in the same way it's like your mom goes like yeah let's um let's not put it on the fridge but uh <laughs> we're gonna put it in a special folder and put that in the attic and that's when we know the serial killings will start <laughs> and just <laughs> Okay, so that's the middle. That's the one that nobody recommends. Where's <laughs> exactly. World of Tomorrow? <laughs> yes. And the one I wanted to watch, his first film mm-hmm. called "It's Such a Beautiful Day." Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to kind of. Ca- that's what I wanted to talk about because World of Tomorrow, I think, does work. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's about um, a robot voice <laughs> <laughs> talking to a little uh, a little girl mm. about how the world pretty much ended. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Listen, yeah, if you can take a statement. Uh, like um, I no longer fall in love with rocks and imbue it with emotional power, then more power to you, Mr. Hertzfeld. <laughs> okay. Um, anyone else you can think of? I mean, there was like uh, we we could have done so many Miyazaki movies, and we just kind of we, we kind of settled on Princess Mononoke's because you hadn't seen it, and I hadn't seen it in years. But I mean, we could have also yeah, done... we had both already seen Spirited Away. Yeah, and Howl's Moving Castle. But I don't know. Yeah, there was nothing. Like... Well, I mean, yeah, I, there was nothing I mean, that felt kind I... of urgent. You know? No, I mean, yeah, Disney classics will always be there in spite of the Disney vault or whatever that is. <laughs> I guess that's true. So, yeah, there's no rush to see them, whereas I, th- I think we got a good... I think we, we captured the, the cornucopia of animation. You know what? It's a fair point. It's an yeah. absolutely fair point. Yeah. Diverse? Inter- international? Oh, that's that's We true. captured several different... Yeah, we didn't just look at American, did we? No. We didn't just look at American animated classics, did we? No, we looked at a Japanese animated feature, and we saw an Israeli feature. And it's so really look at us. animated documentary. People of the world, we are. Look how worldly we mm-hmm. are. Let, let, Absolutely. You just got back from Kyrgyzstan. I just uh, Googled something, I'm sure, that was worldly. Give me a second. Give me a second. <laughs> Give me a second. Uh, I, I read the Atlantic, okay? I don't need to prove anything to you. I, I listen to On the Media by Brooke Gladstone, okay? So, you know, I look, 
I'm not saying I'm smarter than you, but by law of transitive property, I'm probably smarter <laughs> yes, than you. Yes, I would, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. It's only fair. I'm not insecure about that. Okay. All right. You're insecure about that. You're projecting. <laughs> Who am I talking to? <laughs> I'm still here. I'm just letting you, you know, okay, good. dig that grave a little bit deeper. It's always fun. John, let's demonstrate how smart. How, let's demonstrate how smart we are. Oh yeah, let's well, your major do a little spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. What's your major, What's your major dude? What's your major dude? What's your major dude? Oh my God! You ever read Howard Zinn's of People's History of the United States? What's wrong with you? You see these scars, Skyla? You see these scars? <laughs> All right, let's get off this. You got a little lot of We're going to go on for like to cash it in. <laughs> we're going to go on for like another hour if we do. If we don't stop. Now. Oh, and you know what? The audience will love it. <laughs> Who's going first? Should I go first? Uh, go ahead. All right. Because you, you actually, look, you're looking at an actual documentary. Yes. So I was just going to recommend the last documentary I watched, even though it's not that great, comparatively speaking. Uh, I, the last documentary I watched was the Werner Herzog movie, Lo and behold, revelries of a connected of the connected world. Ah, and <sighs> is it is it as good as Grizzly Man? <laughs> no, it is not as good as Grizzly Man. <laughs> um, yeah, th- I think that's been a fascinating career transition between um, narrative films and to a documentary where he basically takes little stories, or what was a little story in the case of Grizzly Man, mm-hmm. or let's say scientists in Antarctica in Encounters at the End of the World. Mm-hmm. And tries to make these grand pronouncements, mostly nihilistic. <laughs> well, so that's, I think that's where this movie kind of falls flat. He takes a bunch of little stories and makes a little mm-hmm. collage, but I don't really feel like there's enough of a unifying theme. There's a bit of a few unifying themes you can kind of pick and choose between them, but it's very choppy, and the it's a lot of, it feels like a kind of collection of a lot of short subject matters. Okay. For instance, he goes about, you know, he, for the first 15 minutes he talks about the history of the internet and that's really fascinating there's a very specific reason why it's called lo and behold is because the first communication over the internet was between ucla and stanford and what they tried to do is they tried to log into a computer remotely and this being a 1960s computer it crashed automatically <laughs> Mm-hmm. So the only message they were trying to type in log in and it crashed halfway through. So the first internet message sent was low, as in lo and behold. Ah. So that's where the title of the documentary okay. comes from. But then he kind of cuts between people who are addicted to the internet and kind of have to sequester themselves. Some people have sequestered themselves because they're sensitive to electromagnetism. He goes on about solar flares and how they could just end the internet at any second. And... He interviews Elon Musk about getting the internet on Mars, and <laughs> it's just it's just it's too disconnected. Ironically, okay. Ironically, yeah. I don't want I don't want to, John. I don't want to judge from afar. Mm-hmm. It seems like Werner Herzog is not comfortable with the changes going on in the world. The world. No, absolutely is that a safe, not. Yeah. Is that a safe assessment? Yeah. And again, the most Herzogian is definitely when he talks about the solar flares that could basically end all electricity and send us back to the Stone Age, because again, he's trying to send us home the message like, look at how fragile it all is. <laughs> um, but there is one... I feel like we can improve on our Werner Herzog impressions, uh, by the well, way. We, can't be, we all can't be Paul of Tompkins, okay? I know, that's true. <laughs> um, there is one shining spot to this movie, and Werner Herzog's affection for these people really kind of comes to the fore. He obviously revels in interviewing these people and definitely enjoys their company. 
uh, there's one moment in particular where he's interviewing someone who was addicted to World of Warcraft. And so mm-hmm. now he kind of lives in this camp, like in the middle of West Virginia, very far away. And there's this moment where he's coming out of his log cabin, and he bounds across this wooden bridge, and he just kind of like poses in front of the camera. And you hear Werner Herzog off camera go, that's the only introduction you need. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Just because of his, does he have a buoyant personality? Exactly. Like, yeah. Like, okay. obviously, I think part of the script was... So he's on cloud nine in this world. Exactly. Yeah. So. I think part of, you know, it was at least scripted, like, you know, say your name to the camera, explain who you are and why you're here. But again, he he didn't need to. All he needed to do was just come out of his cabin and just in that way. And it's just like, all right, we know who this is. End of story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, and so I, I can recommend it slightly. It's definitely not a perfect documentary, and it's far from Herzog's one of Herzog's best documentary films. But yeah, check it out. Okay. Yeah, it's got it's definitely I, has some yeah. I guess spots. I guess there are nuggets to see in it. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, John, it's funny you mentioned Werner Herzog. Oh yeah. Because we previously discussed Fitzgeraldo. Mm-hmm. A movie we both adore because we love stories of guys going down the Amazon, <laughs> white people going down the Amazon, mm-hmm. and getting speared by natives. <laughs> Take that, honky. And that is definitely uh, emblematic of the movie I want to spotlight, which is the recent release. By recent, I mean four months ago. <laughs> and that is Lost City of Z, or the Lost Ugh. City of Zed, for every other English-speaking region of the world. <laughs> I've been wanting to see this movie ever since it came out, but no, I live in a freaking market where these movies don't come here. <laughs> <sighs> hey, John, wanted, have you finished the book? The book that it's based on? I hear it's great. Um, no. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I'm a busy man. Gotcha. Although, I, you know what? It doesn't matter if you finish the book, because the movie is fantastic. Okay. Well, not fantastic, but it's a very it's a very good movie. Excuse me, not fantastic. Well, okay. Let me let me. Are you to trying to tamper my expectations? <laughs> I think I am actually. Okay. <laughs> let me get to the fantastic elements. The first is a great lead performance by Charlie Hunman. Uh, I always thought it was pronounced Hummel, but who knows? Hummel? Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. It, I believe it's Hunman. It's, we can look this up later and prove that I'm right. What do you do? You expect perfect pronunciation from an audio podcast? Come on. I just... <laughs> Um, Charlie Hunman, I could see why people now adore him. Mm-hmm. Probably, it's probably because he's talking in his native accent. <laughs> <laughs> he's so suave. <laughs> yeah. He plays Corporal Percival Fawcett, whose first task... <laughs> Very British name. <laughs> yeah. Whose first task by the Royal Geographic Society to map uh, a region of Bolivia. Uh, there he meets uh, uh, his guide, Mr... Oh, shoot. What's his name? I can't remember his <laughs> name. They say his name about 15 times, but I can't remember it. He's played by Is Robert Rob- Pattinson. He's played by Robert Pattinson, though, who's great as a little like cynical foil. Henry Coston. Henry, Co- yes, Mr. Coston. <laughs> they say Mr. Coston about eighteen million times in the movie. <laughs> okay. But his performance is great. Just based on his introduction, he's he's suffering from the demon drink. Oh dear. And so he's yeah he's kind of over the whole exploration. <laughs> Hashtag so over it. Yeah. So that's a great contrast between the very earnest Corporal Fawcett and Mr. Coston. And so, yeah, it basically recounts three different journeys that he has to uh, the Amazon. First first to map sections of Bolivia, but then to find this lost civilization, which he dubs mm-hmm. Zed, which he hopes is like the final piece of the puzzle. And gotcha. unlike, well, I should probably explain, unlike Fitzcarraldo, he's not, he's never portrayed as mad. Mm-hmm. He's very passionate about this cause, but he's never, he's never portrayed as crazy about it. 
And so that's that's another great point in the movie's favor is how kind of naturalistic it feels when his wife well, I mean, like, when his wife says like oh let me come with you and he objects mm-hmm. something like yeah. that yeah so that it feels very grounded in very human drama. Well, I mean the difference is with like Fitzcarraldo that is a fictionalized version of a real person, mm-hmm. whereas this is like legit trying to tell a story of someone of a real person. Yes. So I guess that's kind of the key difference. Fitzcarraldo has that wiggle room where it's allowed to kind of be a little more dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will have my opera house! <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you, was whether, at the end, it confirms that it's based on a real person. I thought this was like an amalgam of different British admirals and explorers who went to this region and so and was turned into sort of a novel. But no, apparently no, this, no. this... No, it's all about this. It's all about this Fawcett guy. Yeah. And, um... I guess one demerit is that, yes, it's grounded in very human drama, and so the direction isn't flashy. And so everything is kind of this little a little bit of a lucid, stodgy style. Mm. And that's why I wish I had the, these these grand shots. Again, I, it, I my, my mind went back to that great shot in Fitzcarraldo where he goes to the roof of the steamship that he's on <laughs> to play opera to basically abet the, uh, the spears and arrows of the natives that surround them. <laughs> There's nothing like that in Lost City of Z. Mm. Or, excuse me, the Lost City of Zed. I mean, but, it does sound like more of an actor showcase, so I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, all the actors are incredibly charming. And it, it it's not... What's also extraordinary is it is not just about those those explorations to the Amazon. In between each, there are little diversions, including my favorite sequence, which is when World War One breaks out and he's required to serve in the trenches. Mm. That's my favorite sequence. And even though it has seemingly nothing to do... With the rest of the with the rest of the exploration in the Amazon, it still feels like of a piece. It still feels mm-hmm. like a one whole movie. Gotcha. So, so kudos to James Gray for achieving that. James Gray, who wrote the adaptation and directed it. Is it better or worse than King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, <laughs> Guy Ritchie's magnum opus? I, <laughs> I think it was as successful at the box office. Hey oh, boo burn. I know. Take that, Warner Brothers. <laughs> Get some ointment for that burn. Yeah. A little piece of advice for you budding studio executives out there. <laughs> Don't do a King Arthur movie ever again. Don't need no. it. No. Robin Hood, too. Can we throw out Robin Hood while we're here? Ah, uh, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No more British legends. I'm over mm-hmm. it. Yep, over You have so much good British history to go through. <laughs> yep. And jump off of for Game of Thrones. <laughs> Speaking, of course, of the War of the Roses. Fun fact, not a lot of people know this. Oh, great. <laughs> but George R. R. Martin inspiration. Look how smart Greg is. Look how smart Greg is. Was the, was the War of the Roses in the late... Clearly he's time. insecure about his intelligence, guys. Not like Indeed me. I am. Not like me. Also insecure that I haven't seen the first two episodes of this season, <laughs> this oh. season of Game of Thrones. You're <laughs> missing out, my friend. Ooh, they've been good. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Just tell me who dies. <laughs> Everybody dies. <laughs> So should we do the what? What should we do first? Should we do the uh, what we're watching next week, or should we do the plugs? Uh, let's do the plugs. Okay. Just because everybody at, at this point, if you don't, if you aren't aware, <laughs> that we're literally on every podcasting platform. Should we? Should, should we review. do it in the voice of Vin Herzog? Abs- absolutely. Although you just put it on a British affect, but <laughs> you can find us on the Twitter, where we'll be tweeting at Aspiring Snobs. Also, gays. Into the abyss that is Facebook, and click the like button, as your soul slowly disintegrates, as entropy is the nature of all things. All right, Skyler, I'm going to tell you about the movies we're watching next week. <laughs>
All right, you want me to tell you about the movies we're watching next week? <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> we're doing a fucking ah nah. Yeah, we're doing a fucking ah nah. All right, so we're watching we're watching a bunch of recent releases, huh? Yeah, we're gonna give us a break. All right, we're gonna talk we about. We can't some... be watching classes all the time. And look what we're giving you. All right, usually we give you one movie a week. Now we're giving you like four. All right. <laughs> Give us a break, all right? We're just here to we're just here to serve you, all right? <laughs> well, my buddy's just drinking Quaker State, <laughs> and all we ask in return is that you like and subscribe. Come on, come on. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Come on. How do you like them apples? Come on, bro. Come on. <laughs> Click that on, like bro. button. Give us five stars. Oh my God. <laughs> Ugh. Look at Cock Holiday over here. <laughs> Why it do? <laughs> now we're just cool. go see, go check out Zebra Corner <laughs> and the character Mac. <laughs> oh my God! You in your doors. <laughs> Uh, we've really lost it I know yeah. nobody finds us funnier than we do <laughs> no we don't <laughs> and until next week keep us keep aspiring. aspiring no wait Boston accent keep aspiring uh, keep, keep aspiring